couple years ago, uh, it's probably about nine years ago, I had made, I, I make friends with tons of different people. And I had made friends with this one guy, which I thought was a friend, and then we, like, we drifted apart. But then through social media, you know, just differences of opinion and, and, and different things that had come up in our conversations together. Uh, I started somewhere along the way in that, in that span of, um, you know, five to five plus years, I developed this perspective that that individual didn't really like me. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know if it was a, a subconscious thing that happened, but there was this, it developed in the back of my mind. And, it, and so then whenever I heard that name or saw that person's uh, name, I thought, well, that, that person just has an issue with me. And I really don't know what the issue is, but I kind of had created all these scenarios in my mind that this person did not uh, care for, for me. And, uh, but we were still cordial, but somewhere I developed this perspective. Do you guys have anybody in your life, family members, friends, but you, you, the, the years go by and time goes by and there's, not, there's no tension when you're together or if you run into them, it's a real pleasant, cordial exchange, but somewhere deep in your heart, in the back of your mind, you know that there's, there's something not right or it just doesn't feel right. Well, this individual reached out to me in the last year and, and said, hey, let's get some coffee. And so we went and got coffee together and, and I've always enjoyed this person, but somewhere in my heart and my mind, I had connected that this individual just did not like me. And, uh, you know, I'm a people pleaser, so I, wanna, I want everybody to like me. I want to be friends with everybody. As John Maxwell says, there's, uh, there's, there's no strangers, just friends you haven't met yet. You know, that's, that's my, my thing. And uh, immediately when, when we sat down to have some coffee together, um, we, the conversation started to, to, to just, hey, you know, what have you been up to? What have you been up to? And, and what developed, this individual started to, to say really nice things to me about me, like encouraging things that were not, it was genuine, it was authentic, it wasn't something that was, uh, uh, I could, I, and, and what it did was it deconstructed or it dismantled all of those presuppositions, those assumptions that I had let grow and fester over a period of time. I don't know if you relate to that at all, but it's, it, was, it was actually more revealing about myself and my own journey than it was even about this individual. And I had to repent. I had to like do, do some major reflection. I go, wow, you know, that was dark. What was the development in those words that I told myself about that person's perception of me? And it, of course it just let all, it deflated all of that tension. It deflated all that air out of that. And, um, and I walked away because it'd be one thing if you were sitting there and they were just feeding you things that were just niceties. But this wasn't that. It was, it was genuine, heartfelt, hey, um, these are things. And, and um, the reason I bring that story up is as we go through the Gospel of Mark, a lot of people in our culture and even in the church, we have these conversations with ourselves. If you don't have conversations with yourself, then you're not a human. Uh, I know that sounds weird. Some people have multiple conversations. We call that schizophrenia, right? Um, and, but we all have conversations with ourselves because we're always thinking. If not, you would not be asking yourself, you're asking yourself quiet questions. If you make yourself a bowl of cereal, how much cereal do you put in the bowl? How much milk do you put in the bowl? You know, am I going to, you know, drive this way to work today? Am I going to call this person today? You're, you're having these conversations internally with yourself. We have a whole culture that has perceptions, what they were taught or what they caught about Jesus, what they were taught or what they were caught about the Bible. And when we start to get into the scriptures and we start to look and we start to actually have a conversation, 
with the text, what happens is it starts to dismantle, it starts to deconstruct those presuppositions, those assumptions we might have had about God, about Jesus, and about our role as a disciple or follower of Jesus. And this is crucial because just like me with my friend thinking that this person had this issue with me where I had constructed maybe uh, some, uh, you know, not all thoughts are your thoughts, right? So maybe there is an enemy of your soul. So maybe there were some thoughts that were coming in or it just developed. Uh, but I had I'd been just letting this thing fester in the back of my mind and heart. And I didn't know that person's true intentions towards me or perspective of me. And I feel like that is the way that our culture understands Jesus, God, the church, the Bible. They have this baggage that they can't overcome because of what they were taught through experience, not just through words, but through experience in religious settings. But they were also the things that they caught in those moments that were subtle, that got put in the memory bank, in the files, in the way that they see God, the Bible, Jesus, the scriptures. Um, and then faith lived out in a culture. And so... Um, it's, it's one of those deals where when we go to the text, the text has this way of dismantling, deconstructing. And what the text does is it works on you. We like to go to the text so that we can work on our neighbor. We like to go to the Bible to, to, to get some ammunition to work on the people that we think need Jesus. And, and typically what happens is as you get closer to the heart of God, what it does is it starts to hold up a mirror to yourself, which is what I think all of the scriptures are doing, is saying, this is the way things are. This is the setup. This is the way that God created it. This is uh, how you live this out. And, and this is what happens uh, to you when you think it's all about you. And that's what the prophets do. We've, we've reflected on that several times. Um, of course, then we get to this moment as we're going through the Gospel of Mark that 2,000 years ago in real time, real space, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, God showed up. And we've been walking through the text of Mark chapter 1 and we've made it to chapter 2. I have the first uh, couple of messages recorded if you want to go back and look at some of those, those details. What Mark is trying to do is get us to respond to Jesus. Mark wants the individual that reads this to respond to Jesus. Now, we as disciples of Jesus, we as followers of Christ, church-going, good Christian people, we want people to read the Bible, let the Bible line up to their life, and we find out that they come to faith and that their lives are changed and transformed. But really, when we're, when we're talking about what Mark is actually after, Mark wants that person to engage the Jesus that actually walked the earth at least recorded and revealed through the scriptures, not just the hearsay, the, what was caught or what was taught. And um, so we, in the vein of that, I'm going to teach you something. I'm gonna, you're going to be taught something, and, and so then you have to discern even what I tell you this morning as we go through the text. But Mark is concerned. Mark is concerned with our, the individual that's reading this or the group that's reading this, their response to Jesus. And uh, I think that is exactly what the whole Bible is doing, is, is like this is who God is. And this is who God is revealing God to be. And so you need that clearly from uh, the text more so than just your, your, your friend Josh telling you this is who Jesus is. That's good, but we need people to, to be students as well. Got a lot of text to cover, and Mark is wanting us to, to, to learn about Jesus here. Now, if you remember the first couple scenes, uh, I won't go into a long thing about that. We are walking through Mark. There's 16 chapters. John the Baptist showed up on the scene in, in chapter 1. Before we even got out of chapter 1, John was arrested, right? John was handed over. 
Herod, the semi-false Jewish king of the first century, Herod uh, had, had had John arrested. It was in verse 14, and then it immediately launches Jesus' ministry. Jesus comes proclaiming the same message John the Baptist had, which was repent, uh, believe in the gospel. We saw at Jesus' baptism, the sky was schizoed. It was ripped open. It's not going back together. God has shown up. This is what it looks like when God shows up. Who is Jesus? Well, we're going to find out. What's well, God? What does God look like? It looks like Jesus. We walked through the, the chapter and Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. There's a demon that cries out. Jesus tells the demon to shut up. Jesus heals all those people and the crowds are pressing in. We've got just more and more people that are being healed. Jesus is telling them to be quiet because he needs more time to proclaim that God has shown up, that the kingdom of God has arrived. And, of course, you can't keep people that have been healed down because they're excited about the fact that, you know, if you've, if you've got a pretty mediocre life, if you've got a pretty easy life, you know, there's some things that you don't celebrate, you don't have that joy to celebrate, but if you've had a lifelong illness, if you've had a lifelong uh, being ostracized from a community, being kept out, and now you are made well to come back in, you have, the, you have this just joy that you want to share that with people. And so people are flocking to Jesus, the religious and the non-religious, uh, the crowds are pressing in. We looked last week about the four friends that had faith that lowered uh, uh, their friend through the roof because they couldn't get through the crowd to get to Jesus because there were so many people. And Jesus has that theological or the God talk discussion with the religious leaders. That, you know, Jesus heals him by saying, hey, your sins are forgiven. And of course, they're, they're like, nobody forgives sins but God. And we find out that that is Mark telling us that Jesus is God and God is in Jesus and God is healing this individual. And Jesus is proving that he is the son of man prophesied from Daniel chapter uh, 7 verse 13. He's the son of man, a title that Jesus uses for himself. And he's also Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the promised one throughout all the prophets that would come to restore. But this Messiah looks different. The anointed one, the ancient of days, looks different. And Mark is telling us, you want to know who God is? It's Jesus. I want you to respond to this presentation of Jesus that I'm presenting to you. Um, these four scenes that we're going to look at in today's text are, they seem disconnected, but they're actually very much connected. Mark is writing a, com a complete document that when you read it as a whole, it takes some time, but when you read it as a whole, uh, you'll start to hear echoes in the text. You'll start to remember things. You'll have aha moments. And that is exciting because it's not like, I always talk about cults. I spent a lot of time talking with people that were in cults in my undergrad. I spent a lot of time at coffee shops with people that were of different faiths. And a lot of times when I met people that had some type of biblical knowledge, a lot of times they would pull a verse out and they'd hand it to me and they'd say something. And I'd have to go research and find out why they said that and um, not always come around with a great answer. But at the same time, it wasn't. I, I don't want to be that person that just hands you a Bible verse and you take it as I just said it and you didn't do any research. You didn't you didn't make this your faith. Um, so, the text. English Standard Version, starting in verse 13. Mark is moving fast. His favorite word is and, and the word immediately. And he just keeps giving you, it's like you're watching a, uh, a series, and it just keeps changing from one scene to the next. And, but they're all connected to tell you this story. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. Remember this, this, this picture of these people pressing in. The crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. 
Jesus is telling him about the kingdom of God, telling him about the scriptures, telling him about repenting and turning towards God because God is going to give them life. Um, he's teaching these crowds that are pressing in on him. In verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now, we already saw in chapter 1 that Andrew and Peter, James and John, they were fishing. James and John were in their daddy's boat. They left the fishing never. They, no succession plan. They just left and followed Jesus. A couple of those images was that the Messiah in the ancient world, or, or the, the, a rabbi in the ancient world, a teacher of, of Judaism in the ancient world, uh, the people would come to them to be their apprentice, not the other way around. And so this is flipping the script a little bit that the rabbi is actually going out and calling these people uh, to a revolution. There's some military picture, picturesque here. Now, a lot of people think of religion and, and military power. That's not a good combination. But again, the logical outflow of the text when you're reading the text is that Jesus' way of revolution is not the same way as the world's Im imperial powers. It's, it's through compassion. It's through self-sacrifice. It's through giving to the neighbor, to, uh, washing feet. That's the picture. So, but he's calling these, these guys to this radical revolution that the kingdom of God has shown up. This picture of a kingdom. And Jesus is the king. God has shown up. He's the owner of the house. And he's already called these other four. Now, fishing is, is a pretty common thing in the ancient world. That's pretty respectable. But this scene, Mark is letting us in on, we want to respond to the God that has shown up, Jesus. This is, this is the picture we get. This guy named Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. Now, we always make jokes about the IRS, that the IRS is just horrible. And, you know, but there's actually a lot of checks and balances with, with our system compared to this ancient system. You could put yourself out there to be a tax collector in the ancient world, and your job was, was to collect what the state required of you to pay your slave owner or uh, your imperial master, your manager, if you want to get that picture in your mind. But then there was the, whatever was left over, you got to keep. And so the idea was to create this margin through deceit through manipulation to to gather in all that you can so you can imagine these guys did not have the irs doesn't have a great reputation but imagine if there was no 1040 where the lines are actually a math equation lining up right it was this in the ancient world was not to say that corruption doesn't happen in our world because there's humans behind everything but it's this picture in the in the ancient world that these people were inflating everything to grab to skim off the top and so they had this horrible rep reputation they were synonymous, you see it in the text, tax collectors and sinners. They're like, it appears together in the Bible multiple times, almost like, you know, the profession of being a tax collector and there's the profession of being a sinner. That's the same thing. Nobody liked tax collectors. The other issue is in Matthew. Matthew is, Levi, son of Alphaeus, is not listed among the 12 disciples. We've always assumed that this is Matthew sitting at his tax collector. In Matthew, this individual is named Matthew. And uh, where, what I want, the only reason I bring that up, not to confuse you, but to say that I think what this is, I don't think it's Matthew. This is my opinion. I don't think this is Matthew, the disciple, sitting at his tax collector booth. I think this is another person named Levi. And the reason that, the, that I say that is because I think Mark is telling us that this is, this is how wide the scope of Jesus calling people in. It could be Matthew. It really doesn't affect salvation theology uh, issues. 
But when you see Levi, son of Alphaeus, you go look at the 12, you're not going to see it. You're going to see James, son of Alphaeus, in the list of the 12, but you're not going to see Levi. Um, you, and maybe it is Matthew. But the point is this. I love this. He says, and as he passed by, he saw Levi. Now, make a leap with me. God has shown up. God is walking through the city, and God sees the person that is despised by everybody in the town. And he says, follow me. Now, the difference between this and the fisherman is once he leaves his tax, food, his tax booth, he's not getting to go back to that. So if this whole thing that Jesus is calling him to doesn't pan out, he's not going back to this profession. He's done. This is a severing from that, from that occupation. But it's this picture that God saw Levi. Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus walking among them and seeing. And it's a good news that God sees people like Levi. And it's good news that God sees people like Josh. This is dismantling some of those pictures. Some people think that God is out to get them. Some people think that God is out to squash them. Some people think that the Bible is just all about how God hates you so much. God hates the world that he sent his only son. <laughs> right? that, they, they flip John 3.16 around and they, 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 they have that picture. And then the church sometimes puts that out there through our teachings and sometimes through our actions. But if you just go to the text with me and you picture God saw this individual. Says that Levi got up, rose, and followed him. And as he reclined at the table at his house. Oh, Jesus went to his house. This is not looking good, guys. Many tax collectors and sinners, there's that combination again, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Eating a meal in the ancient world with people said that you were doing business with them, that you were in cahoots with them, that you were, you were just in the same line with them. And God shown up. This is what it looks like when God shows up. When the sky rips open, God's on the loose. God's at people's houses where other righteous religious people are not going to be showing up. This is uh, a flip that the text brings to us over and over again. It doesn't, it's not licensed to say that Jesus is just partying with these people, but it's this picture that Jesus has shown up and he's in this space. He does not feel like he's going to be contaminated. He feels like the kingdom of God through Jesus is going to contaminate them, which is good news. So they're all sitting there. And the scribes of the Pharisees, we met them last week, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, they don't ask Jesus this, they ask the disciples, they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well do not need a doctor, right? They don't need a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous people who think they've got it good with God. I've come to call people who know that they need God. This is, this is the picture. In fact, what we find here is that there's these four scenes, the three questions that are asked to Jesus in these first three scenes, Jesus responds with a proverbial saying like this. It's, hey, you know, people that are well, they don't need a doctor. It's, the hospitals don't exist for all the people that don't need to go see the doctors. The hospitals exist because the broken and the, and the people that need uh, somebody with knowledge and the care uh, to, to make them well. That's why. So Jesus throws out this proverbial saying. Next scene. Now John's disciples, John the Baptist, right? John, the, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And so then Jesus throws out another proverbial saying. He just throws it out. Even though they were asking Jesus. Or they were asking, uh, to, they were asking the disciples. Why, do they, why, do, why does this happen? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast 
While the bridegroom is with them, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So, how many of people have ever read this? You've seen this somehow, like Jesus is responding about this wedding banquet thing. And then he goes under this next proverbial picture of this piece of cloth. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine, you know, it's going to expand from the gases of the wine. It's going to, the fermentation process is going to expand. And the old wineskins, because they're not, they don't, they're, they're not uh, uh, able to move, they don't have the elasticity that they once did. They're going to burst, and the wine is wasted. It's destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so as we move through the Gospels, you start to see Jesus talk in parables, or Jesus says things that you're going, what in the world was Jesus saying? Jesus walks up. He's on the scene. They're questioning, why, why do your disciples, why do, they, why do they not fast? And Jesus, remember Mark's telling, trying to tell us about what happens when God shows up, who Jesus is, responds to Jesus as Jesus is presented. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God on earth. And uh, have you guys ever been like, you, got, like you, you get on the weekend and you're like, I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to buy a whole bunch of vegetables. And you feel really proud as you're standing there in line to buy your vegetables. And you're like, you're hoping people notice how healthy you're, you're being because you've got the greens, you've got the fruits, and it's, it's, it's the weekend, and you know what? We're gonna, I'm gonna, this week, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna lose some weight, I'm gonna get healthy. And you're hoping people notice how, how good you're being. But then somebody, you forgot, you had that magnet on your fridge, and the fridge said that somebody's wedding was Wednesday. And you're like, oh no. I was gonna eat nothing but fruit and veg all week, but okay, well I'll do Monday and Tuesday. So you get to Wednesday, and you're like at this wedding, and it's your best friend's wedding. It's, the be it's your best friend in the world. And they're like, they made this cake. This cake was $5,000. You know, it's just this elaborate thing that, 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 that you need to partake in. But the problem is you set up these standards that nobody else was worried about. But you set these standards for yourself. And now you're at a party and you're being the, you know, you're being the killjoy at the party. God has actually shown up in Jesus. And these people who worship the text by creating laws upon laws, thinking that if they keep the laws correctly, that Messiah will show up. The irony, right? Messiah has shown up. All of their rule keeping to try to make them right with God is actually keeping them from God. And Jesus is saying, you know what? At a wedding, you don't sit there and eat fruits and veg. You don't show up and say, I'm not going to have anything. You do that at a funeral because when you, things are sorrowful and you have had grief and loss, you realize that you're maybe not that hungry. There's, these are word pictures from the Greek text that Jesus is showing up and saying, hey, this is the scene, Mr. and Mrs. Religious. This is the scene that God has shown up, and this is a completely different thing. There will be a day right here. Jesus actually foretells. Mark is telling us about the cross. He says... If we can go back to one of those slides, Jerry. And that goes to the forehead. Here, I'll just read it to you from here. We're good. He said, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. 
Fasting was a sign of mourning, a loss. But of course, that's going to be short-lived too because the resurrection is coming. It's short-lived in the gospel. So that's this picture, okay? That's, that's this, this first thing of fasting. So Jesus has a problem because he eats with the people that he shouldn't eat with. He has a problem because he doesn't do the, the religious fasting rules that everybody does. Uh, and uh, now we get into two, two issues with, with the Sabbath. One Sabbath, next scene, Mark's taking us through. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, him and his disciples, they began to pluck heads of grain off of just as they're, as they're walking through this. And the Greek picture is actually that they're making a road. They're actually forging a road in this space, which is, my father-in-law used to live on 9th Street in this big white house, and people would cut from 9th Street because it's really hard to get over to like Wayne. I don't know if you guys know that, like to get over to Wayne Street from 9th. And they would cut through, they'd cut through the lawn, and so eventually they had to put them in. Of course, Andrea and her, her siblings would be out there playing basketball, and these cars would just be like driving through their, their driveway. And, uh, and so they had to put up a chain link, and of course that big house on, white, on, on 9th Street, um, they, had to, they had to block it. So picture Jesus walking through somebody else's property. Now, there was a thing in the ancient world that kings could do this. Kings could walk through any place that they wanted to walk, and they could forge a road wherever they wanted to forge. Mark is giving us a hint that God has shown up, and the true king is here. That's one piece of this. The other piece is they're walking through the grain fields. They start to eat. Now, they, it says that they were hungry, and... Okay, of course, here we have the, the religious police again, the Pharisees. And, and i got to make a note here that the Pharisees, we always think of them as hypocrites. They're not really hypocrites. I mean, they kind of are in, in, some, of the, in some of the ways that we think about hypocrite. Somebody that says, hey, don't do this, and then they go do it. We, we've all been guilty of that. The Pharisees' problem is that they're not hypocrite. They're hypercritical. They're hypercritical with all of these things that they think that God expects from humanity. Um, and, and, of course, a person like Jesus, is totally turning everything that they know on its head. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are they not doing what they should be doing on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jerry, if we can stay on that slide for a second. Anybody ever read that text before? And this is, this is an interesting thing. There's a couple books written by one, one, one prominent atheist today wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. Bart Ehrman wrote a book, and, and his argument when he was at Moody Seminary was that in, the, in, the, in his studies, this was the text that made him lose his faith. This was the text, this, this convoluted, interesting text of Jesus walking through the field, they're eating stuff. Deuteronomy says that the poor can walk through and eat stuff, but this is they're actually carving a road. Deuteronomy says that you can't use a sickle. This is pretty much that they're harvesting this stuff, they're eating it, they're, just, they're eating their fill. Jesus is pictured as his king from Mark. And then Jesus, when he's questioned by the religious law keepers, he throws up this deal from 1 Samuel saying, hey, do you remember what David did when he was in need? And so that I don't butcher this completely. Is everybody okay with five minutes to go? We're, 
I'm letting you grab your thoughts. One guy says, is this all a joke? A mistake by Jesus, by Mark? Is this a mess up? Mark so rarely misremembers texts. When, when the Bible authors are quoting texts from the Old Testament, they rarely get it wrong. They usually use it in a different way or they have a different purpose, okay? Jesus' response adds confusion to confusion because he appeals to a precedent. In 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, he says David and his companions were hungry, and so they entered the house of God when Abathar was high priest, and he ate the bread set apart there only for the priests to eat. This gets the original story wrong at almost every count. David was by himself. This is, this is the fact from 1 Samuel. Listen to this. David was by himself with no companions. The story does not mention that they were hungry. David did not enter the house of God. The priest was Ahimelech rather than Abathar. And though David took the bread with him, the story does not mention that he ate it. Can you see where the atheist is like going, oh, found a contradiction in your Bible there, Mr. Christian. But the, but the reality is, is what there's, there, people have tried to, 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 fix, to fix this. Is Mark just forgetting? Is Mark having a memory lapse? Is Jesus getting the story wrong? I mean, God incarnate, God's showing up. He doesn't even know, the, he doesn't even know his own word. This was done to show that these Pharisees, eager to burden the common people with details of the law, are actually so ignorant of the scripture that they do not notice one misquotation after another. Such matters have not altogether changed. And those who quote a particular biblical passage as a means of condemnation often turn out to, be, to, to not know its context or relation to other biblical texts. This is hilarious. Jesus is getting the story wrong at every point because he knows that they don't know the scriptures. In John 5, Jesus tells them that you search the scriptures for life, but you refuse to come to me for life. This is, this is good stuff, guys. You can take this and, and just, just chew on this one for a while. Jesus is misquoting the Bible because he knows that the hearers that are so set out to catch people getting the law wrong, Jesus actually points out in their, in their ridiculousness. I love Jesus. Such full of hyperbole, such full of shock. This is God showing up, and God's got a sense of humor and going, hey, remember that Bible passage? Ah, you didn't read it. You don't know it. You don't even see what I'm doing in the present because God, Messiah, anointed one has shown up in your face, and you're looking for somebody else. This is good stuff. Okay, we can go to the next. Jesus tells them that, you know, in that scene, he, he gives another proverbial saying that Sabbath was made for you, human being, not the other way around. God did not set up this, orchestrate this creation to put you in a straitjacket and make you uh, crazy. God had set up the creation. Sin was a capacity that was able to enter the creation. And Sabbath was this picture of there's a day where I'm going to let you just let your hair down. That you're just going to have a day where you don't have to go into the fields and toil. That you're going to have a day where you can remember how good God is. So the not working on the Sabbath was, was the purpose of giving humanity life flourishing, shalom, not to steal life and take life away. Mark is giving us a picture of Jesus, and he wants us to respond to Jesus. Next scene. Jesus again entered the synagogue, Jewish church, right? And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. Now these Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, these groups, these religious people, are watching. Now it says that they're actually trying to catch him. 
They're watching Jesus see whether he would heal the man with the withered hand so that they can accuse him in Exodus. To break the Sabbath, to work on the Sabbath was punishable by death. They want to accuse him. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, to the religious leaders, remember Jesus has been doing these proverbial sayings. And this is the last one where he actually provokes the Pharisees into a conversation. And Jesus says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus is not very happy about this. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Now, technically, Jesus doesn't do any work, right? He doesn't spit in the dirt like he usually does. He doesn't lay hands. He doesn't do anything. He just speaks. And this person's hand is made whole. Now, you got to think of a Jewish person, Jewish person doing the prayers in the, Jew, in the Jewish church. Imagine, imagine this person. This is the, this person's whole life. There's, there's a couple psalms, there's places in the Old Testament talk about how your hand is, if your hand is maimed, it's because you, were, you sinned with it. There's this ancient picture of, of that, that you are a sinner and God is punishing you because this, there, there's these pictures. This person, every time in worship, trying to offer the prayers, he can't participate in the community. He's being judged by everybody like, oh, don't stand next to that guy because he sinned and God's mad at him. And Jesus shows up, Jesus doesn't lay hands on him, he technically doesn't work. Jesus flips a question into the religious leaders. They're supposed to know everything about God. And he asks them, is it lawful to, to, to bring life on Sabbath? Or is it, or is it to, to, to kill on the Sabbath? They remain silent. He looks at them. Jesus gets upset when you don't care about people, by the way. When you judge people and you don't give people a chance. And you don't see the tax collectors. And you don't see the, the, the people that have demonic oppression. Jesus... God, God, God's not too happy about that because God cares about people. God cares about you. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And look how this ends. This is where we're going to leave this uh, today on this, this last note. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians, Mark makes this word up because the Herodians are the people that are underneath Herod. Remember the Jewish king? And he's kind of the puppet because actually Pontius Pilate has to deal with, with Herod. The Jews don't have any power. That's why they're waiting on Messiah to come to release them from Rome, Roman rule. But as long as they keep the peace, they make their exchanges in the temple, flood, the, flood, flood money into the system, everybody's happy. But the Pharisees go and, they, they go and conspire with a group that they're not even with. The Herodians break the law every day. The Herodians are the people that do not follow Yahweh. So they go partner on the Sabbath, by the way, with the Herodians against how to destroy him or how to kill him. Now, if you remember John the Baptist, verse 14 of chapter 1, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist was handed over. It was a foreshadow of where Jesus is going, which is to the cross. We have here, right here, and this is going to be a catalyst for the next chapters of where we see that what, when God shows up, the destruction of sin in the world and the violence of uh, broken humanity comes against God full force. And we get to see that unpacked. But here's the deal. That man's withered hand isn't nothing like those people's withered souls. And the other side of this is these, these people that are going out to destroy him. It, it's the irony, right? Jesus is like, is it good to do good on the Sabbath? 
Or is it, is it to do harm? What kind of God is this, by the way? Remember my story? I always thought this guy was mad at me and I created this whole system of thinking about this guy. And then when I finally got to know the guy, when I caught up with him, when I got into his actual thoughts about me, I realized that he was actually for me, not against me. We have a whole culture of people that think God is against them. We have a whole culture of thinking that Jesus looks like this. Jesus looks like this political scene. Jesus looks like this. Jesus is this. And when you actually go to the text, you find out that God has shown up. And this is who Mark is revealing Jesus to be. And the irony of it all is that, yeah, we can't work to heal people because God's not like that. But what we will do is conspire with people who truly do break the law, that who totally misunderstood Sabbath. We'll do that on the Sabbath. And you know what we'll do? We'll kill innocent people on the Sabbath. That's what we'll do. Religion can take a dark twist if it's not filtered through the truth of the God revealed through the scriptures. Let me pray for it.